0: chapter 7 of a pair of blue eyes this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by tigh hines a pair of blue eyes by thomas hardy chapter 7 no more of me you knew my love stephen smith revisited endelstow vicarage agreeably to his promise he had a genuine artistic reason for coming though no such reason seemed to be required six and thirty old seat ends of exquisite fifteenth-century workmanship were rapidly decaying in an aisle of the church and it became politic to make drawings of their worm-eaten contours ere they were battered past recognition in the turmoil of the so-called restoration he entered the house at sunset, and the world was pleasant again to the two fair-haired ones. A momentary pang of disappointment had nevertheless passed through Elfrida when she casually discovered that he had not come that minute post-haste from London but had reached the neighbourhood the previous evening. Surprise would have accompanied the feeling had she not remembered that several tourists were haunting the coast at that season, and that Stephen might have chosen to do likewise. They did little besides chat that evening, Mr. Swancourt beginning to question his visitor, closely yet paternally and in good part, on his hopes and prospects from the profession he had embraced. Stephen gave vague answers. Next day it rained. In the evening, when twenty-four hours of Elfrida had completely rekindled her admirer's ardour, a game of chess was proposed between them. The game had its value in helping on the developments of their future. Elfride soon perceived that her opponent was but a learner. She next noticed that he had a very odd way of handling the pieces when castling or taking a man. Antecedently, she would have supposed that the same performance must be gone through by all players in the same manner. She was taught by his differing action that all ordinary players who learn the game by sight unconsciously touch the men in a stereotyped way. This impression of indescribable oddness in Stephen's touch culminated in speech when she saw him, at taking one of her bishops, push it aside with a taking man instead of lifting it as a preliminary to the move. "'How strangely you handle the men, Mr. Smith!' "'Oh, do I. I am sorry for that.' "'Oh, no, don't be sorry. It's not a matter great enough for sorrow. But who taught you to play?' "'Nobody, Miss Swancourt,' he said. I learned from a book lent to me by my friend Mr. Knight, the noblest man in the world. But you have seen people play. I have never seen the playing of a single game. This is the first time I have ever had the opportunity of playing with a living opponent. I have worked out many games from books and studied the reasons of the different moves, but that's all. This was a full explanation of his mannerism. But the fact that a man with the desire for chess should have grown up without being able to see or engage in a game astonished her not a little she pondered on the circumstances for some time looking into vacancy and hindering the play mr swancourt was sitting with his eyes fixed on the board but apparently thinking of other things half to himself he said pending the move of elfride "Quae finis aut quod me manets dipendium stephen replied instantly affare iuas cum fide poanus luam excellent prompt gratifying said mr swancourt with feeling bringing down his hand upon the table and making three pawns and a knight dance over their borders by the shaking i was musing on those words as applicable to a strange course i am steering but enough of that i am delighted with you mr smith for it is so seldom in this desert that i meet a man who is gentleman and scholar enough to continue a quotation however trite it may be i also apply the words to myself said stephen quietly you the last man in the world to do that i should have thought come murmured elfrida poutingly and insinuating herself between them tell me all about it come construe construe stephen looked steadfastly into her face and said slowly and in a voice full of a far-off meaning that seemed quaintly premature in one so young Quay finis. What will be the end? Aught, or? Quad stipendium. What fine? Mane me, awaits me. Affare, speak out. Luam, I will pay. Confide, with fate. Usas, poenus, the penalty required. The vicar who had listened with a critical compression of the lips to the schoolboy recitation, and, by reason of his imperfect hearing, had missed the marked realism of Stephen's tone in the English words. Now he said hesitatingly, "'By the by, Mr. Smith, I know you'll excuse my curiosity, though your translation was unexceptionally correct and close. You have a way of pronouncing your Latin, which to me seems most peculiar. Not that the pronunciation of a dead language is of much importance.' yet your accents and quantities have a grotesque sound to my ears. I thought at first that you had acquired your way of breathing the vowels from some of the northern colleges, but it cannot be so with the quantities. What I was going to ask was if your instructor in the classics could possibly have been an Oxford or Cambridge man. Yes, he was an Oxford man, a fellow of St Cyprian's. Really? Oh, yes, there's no doubt about it. "'The oddest thing I've ever heard of,' said Mr. Swancourt, starting with astonishment, "'that the pupil of such a man—' "'The best and cleverest man in England,' cried Stephen enthusiastically, "'that the pupil of such a man should pronounce Latin in the way you pronounce it beats all I ever heard. "'How long did he instruct you?' Four years.' Four years?' "'It's not so strange when I explain,' Stephen hastened to say. "'It was done in this way. By letter i sent him exercises and construing twice a week and twice a week he sent them back to me corrected with marginal notes of instruction that's how i learned my latin and greek such as it is he is not responsible for my scanning he has never heard me scan a line a novel case and a singular instance of patience cried the vicar on his part not mine ah henry knight is one in a thousand i remember his speaking to me on this very subject of pronunciation he says that much to his regret he sees a time coming when every man will pronounce even the common words of his own tongue as seems right to his own ears and be taught none the worse for it that the speaking age is passing away to make room for the writing age both elfride and her father had waited attentively to hear stephen go on to what would have been the most interesting part of the story namely what circumstances could have necessitated such an unusual method of education. But no further explanation was volunteered, and they saw by the young man's manner of concentrating himself upon the chessboard that he was anxious to drop the subject. The game proceeded. Elfride played by rote, Stephen by thought. It was the cruelest thing to checkmate him after so much labour, she considered. What was she dishonest enough to do in her compassion?' To let him checkmate her a second game followed and being herself absolutely indifferent as to the result her playing was above the average among women and she knew it she allowed him to give checkmate again a final game in which she adopted the Muzio gambit as her opening was terminated by Elfrida's victory at the twelfth move stephen looked up suspiciously his heart was throbbing even more excitedly than was hers which itself had quickened when she seriously set to work on this last occasion. Mr. Swancourt had left the room. "'You have been trifling with me till now,' he exclaimed, his face flushing. "'You did not play your best in the first two games.' Elfride's guilt showed in her face. Stephen became the picture of vexation and sadness, which, relishable for a moment, caused her the next instant to regret the mistake she had made. "'Mr. Smith, forgive me,' she said sweetly. I see now, though I did not at first, that what I have done seems like contempt for your skill; but indeed I did not mean it in that sense. I could not, upon my conscience, win a victory in those first and second games over one who fought at such a disadvantage, and so manfully." He drew a long breath, and murmured bitterly, "Ah, you are cleverer than I. You can do everything; I can do nothing. Oh, Miss Swancourt," he burst out wildly, his heart swelling in his throat. I must tell you how i love you all these months of my absence i have worshipped you he leapt from his seat like the impulsive lad that he was stood round to her side and almost before she suspected it his arm was round her waist and the two sets of curls intermingled so entirely new was full-blown love to elfride that she trembled as much from the novelty of the emotion as from the emotion itself then she suddenly withdrew herself and stood upright vexed that she had submitted unresistingly even to this momentary pressure she resolved to consider this demonstration as premature you must not begin such things as those she said with coquettish hauteur of a very transparent nature and you must not do so again and papa is coming let me kiss you only a little one he said with his usual delicacy and without reading the factitiousness of her manner no not one "'Only on your cheek?' "'No.' "'Forehead?' "'Certainly not.' "'You care for somebody else, then?' "'Ah, I thought so.' "'I am sure I do not.' "'Nor for me, either.' "'How can I tell?' she said, simply, the simplicity lying merely in the broad outlines of her manner and speech. There were the semitone of voice and half-hidden expression of eyes, which tell the initiated. How very fragile is the ice of reserve at these times! Footsteps were heard, Mr. Swancourt then entered the room, and their private colloquy ended. The day after this partial revelation, Mr. Swancourt proposed to drive to the cliffs beyond Targon Bay, a distance of three or four miles. Half an hour before the time of departure a crash was heard in the back yard, and presently William Worm came in saying partially to the world in general, partially to himself, and slightly to his auditors, "'Aye, sure. That frying official will be the end of William Worm. They be at it again this morning, same as ever. Fizz, fizz, fizz.'" "'Your head bad again, Worm,' said Mr. Swancourt. "'What was that noise we just heard in the yard?' "'Ah, sir, a weak wamblin' man am I, and the frying have been going on in my poor head all through the night and this morning as usual.'" And i was so dazed with it that down fell a piece of legwood across the shaft of the pony shay and splintered it off ah yes says i i feel as if it my own shay and though i have done it and parish pays my lot if i go from here perhaps i am as independent as one here and there dear me the shaft was a carriage broken said elfride she was disappointed stephen doubly so the vicar showed more warmth of temper than the accident seemed to demand much to stephen's uneasiness and rather to his surprise he had not supposed so much latent sternness could coexist with mr swancourt's frankness and good nature you shall not be disappointed said the vicar at length it is almost too long a distance for you to walk Elfrida can trot down on her pony and you shall have my old nag smith elfride exclaimed triumphantly you have never seen me on horseback oh you must she looked at stephen and read his thoughts immediately ah you don't ride mr smith i'm sorry to say i don't fancy a man not being able to ride she said rather pertly the vicar came to his rescue that's N- common enough he has had other lessons to learn now i recommend this plan let Elfrida ride on horseback and you mr smith walk beside her the arrangement was welcomed with secret delight by stephen it seemed to combine in itself all the advantages of a long, slow ramble with Elfrida, without the contingent possibility of the enjoyment being spoiled by her becoming weary. The pony was saddled and brought round. "'Now, Mr. Smith,' the lady said, imperatively, coming downstairs and appearing in a riding habit, as she always did in a change of dress like a new edition of a delightful volume, "'you have a task to perform to-day. These earrings are my very favourite darling ones.' but the worst of it is that they have such short hooks that they are liable to be dropped if i toss my head about much and when i am riding i can't give my mind to them it would be doing me night service if you could keep your eyes fixed upon them and remember them every minute of the day and tell me directly i drop one they have had such hair-breadth escapes haven't they unity she continued to the parlour-maid who was standing at the door yes miss that they have said unity with round-eyed commiseration "'Once t'was in the lane that I found one of them,' pursued Elfrida reflectively. "'And then t'was by the gate to eighteen acres,' Unity chimed in. "'And then t'was on the carpet of my own room,' rejoined Elfride merrily. "'And then t'was dangling on the embroidery of your petticoat, miss. "'And then t'was down your back, miss, wasn't it? "'And oh, what a way you was in, miss, wasn't you? "'My, until you found it!' Stephen took Elfrida's slight foot upon his hand. One, two, three, and up she said. Unfortunately, not so. He staggered and lifted, and the horse edged round, and Elfrido was ultimately deposited upon the ground rather more forcibly than was pleasant. Stephen looked all contrition. "'Never mind,' said the vicar encouragingly. "'Try again. Tis a little accomplishment that requires some practice, although it looks so easy. "'Stand closer to the horse's head, Mr. Smith.' "'Indeed, I shan't let him try again.' she said with a microscopic look of indignation. Worm, come here and help me to mount. Worm stepped forward, and she was in the saddle in a trice. They moved on, going for some distance in silence, the hot air of the valley being occasionally brushed from their faces by a cool breeze which wound its way along the ravines leading up from the sea. I suppose, said Stephen, that a man who can neither sit in a saddle himself nor help another person into one seems a useless encumbrance but miss swancourt i'll learn to do it all for your sake i will indeed what is so unusual in you she said in a didactic tone justifiable in a horsewoman's address to a benighted walker is that your knowledge of certain things should be combined with your ignorance of certain other things stephen lifted his eyes earnestly to her you know he said it is simply because there are so many other things to be learnt in this wide world that i didn't trouble myself about that particular bit of knowledge i thought it would be useless to me but i don't think so now i will learn riding and all connected with it because then you will like me better do you like me much less for this she looked sideways at him with critical meditation tenderly rendered do i seem like la belle dame sans merci she began suddenly without replying to his question fancy yourself saying mr smith I sat her on my pacing steed, and nothing else saw all day long, for sidelong would she bend and sing a fairy song. She found me roots of relish sweet, and honey wild, and manna dew. And that's all she did. No, no, said the young man, stilly and with a rising colour. And sure in language strange she said, I love thee, true. Not at all, she rejoined quickly. See how I gallop now pansy off and Elfrida started and stephen beheld her light figure contracting to the dimensions of a bird as she sank into the distance her hair flowing he walked on in the same direction and for a considerable time could see no signs of her returning dull as a flower without the sun he sat down upon a stone and not for fifteen minutes was any sound of horse or rider to be heard then Elfrida and pansy appeared on the hill in a round trot such a delightful scamper as we've had she said her face flushed and her eyes sparkling she turned the horse's head stephen arose and they went on again well what are you to say to me mr smith after my long absence do you remember a question you could not exactly answer last night whether i was more to you than anybody else said he i cannot exactly answer now either why can't you "'because I don't know if I am more to you than anyone else.' "'Yes, indeed you are!' he exclaimed in a voice of intense appreciation, at the same time gliding round and looking into her face. "'Eyes and eyes!' he murmured playfully, and she blushingly obeyed, looking back into his. "'And why not lips on lips?' he said daringly. "'No, certainly not. Anybody might look, and it would be the death of me. "'You may kiss my hand if you like.' He expressed by a look that to kiss a hand through a glove, and that a riding glove, was not a great treat under the circumstances. There, then, I'll take my glove off. Isn't it a pretty white hand? Ah, you don't want to kiss it, and now you shall not. If I do not, may I never kiss again, you severe Elfrida? You know I think more of you than I can tell, that you are my queen. I would die for you, Elfride a rapid red again filled her cheeks and she looked at him meditatively what a proud moment it was for elfride then she was ruling a heart with absolute despotism for the first time in her life stephen stealthily pounced upon her hand no i won't i won't she said intractably and you shouldn't take me by surprise there ensued a mild form of tussle for absolute possession of the much-coveted hand in which the boisterousness of a boy and girl was far more prominent than the dignity of a man and woman then pansy became restless Elfrida recovered her position and remembered herself you make me behave in, in not a nice way at all she exclaimed in a tone neither of pleasure nor anger but partaking of both i ought not to have allowed such a romp we are too old for that sort of thing i i hope you don't think me too too much of a creeping round sort of a man he said in a penitent tone "'conscious that he too had lost a little dignity by the proceeding. "'You are too familiar, and I can't have it. "'Considering the shortness of time we have known each other, Mr. Smith, "'you take too much upon you. "'You think I am a country girl, and it doesn't matter how you behave to me.' "'I assure you, Miss Swancourt, that I had no idea of freak in my mind. "'I wanted to imprint a sweet, serious kiss upon your hand, and that is all. "'Now that's creeping around again, and you mustn't look into my eyes so.' she said shaking her head at him and trotting on a few paces in advance thus she led the way out of the lane and across some fields in the direction of the cliffs at the boundary of the fields nearest the sea she expressed a wish to dismount the horse was tied to a post and they both followed an irregular path which ultimately terminated upon a flat ledge passing round the face of a huge blue-black rock at a height about midway between the sea and the topmost verge there far beneath and before them lay the everlasting stretch of ocean there upon detached rocks were the white screaming gulls seeming ever intent to settle and yet always passing on right and left ranked the toothed and zigzag line of storm-torn heights forming the series which culminated in the one beneath their feet behind the youth and maiden was a tempting alcove and seat formed naturally by the beetling mass and wide enough to admit two or three persons. Elfrida sat down, and Stephen sat beside her. "'I am afraid it is hardly proper for us to be here either,' she said, half inquiringly. "'We have not known each other long enough for this kind of thing, have we?' "'Oh, yes,' he replied judiciously, "'quite long enough.' "'How do you know?' "'It is not length of time, but the manner in which our minutes beat that makes enough or not enough in our acquaintanceship.' "'Yes, I see that.' but I wish papa suspected or knew what a very new thing I am doing. He does not think of it at all. Darling Elfie, I wish we could be married. It is wrong for me to say it, I know it is, before you know more, but I wish we might be, all the same. Do you love me deeply, deeply? No, she said in a fluster. At this point-blank denial Stephen turned his face away decisively and preserved an ominous silence the only objects of interest on earth for him being apparently the three or four-score seabirds circling in the air afar off. "'I didn't mean to stop you quite,' she faltered with some alarm, and seeing that he still remained silent, she added more anxiously, "'If you say that again, perhaps I will not be quite quite so obstinate, if you don't like me to be.' "'Oh, my Elfrida!" he exclaimed, and kissed her. It was Elfrida's first kiss— And so awkward and unused was she full of striving no relenting there was none of those apparent struggles to get out of the trap which only results in getting further in no final attitude of receptivity no easy close of shoulder to shoulder hand upon hand face upon face and in spite of coyness the lips in the right place at the supreme moment that graceful though apparently accidental falling into position which many have noticed as precipitating the end and making sweethearts the sweeter was not there why because experience was absent a woman must have had many kisses before she kisses well in fact the art of tendering the lips for those amatory salutes follows the principles laid down in treatises on legerdemain for performing the trick called forcing a card the card is to be shifted nimbly withdrawn edged under and withal not to be offered till the moment the unsuspecting person's hand reaches the pack this forcing to be done so modestly and yet so coaxingly that the person trifled with imagines he is really choosing what is in fact thrust into his hand well there were no such facilities now and stephen was conscious of it first with a momentary regret that his kiss should be spoilt by her confused receipt of it and then with a pleasant perception that her awkwardness was her charm "'And do you care for me and love me?' he said. "'Yes. "'Very much. "'Yes. "'And I mustn't ask you if you'll wait for me and be my wife some day.' "'Why not?' she said naively. "'There is a reason why, my Elfride. "'Not any one that I know of. "'Suppose there is something connected with me "'which makes it almost impossible for you to agree to be my wife "'or for your father to countenance such an idea.' nothing shall make me cease to love you no blemish can be found upon your personal nature it is pure and generous i know and having that how can i be cold to you and shall nothing else affect us shall nothing beyond my nature be a part of my quality in your eyes elfie nothing whatsoever she said with a breath of relief is that all some outside circumstance what do i care you can hardly judge dear till you know what has to be judged for that We will stop till we get home. I believe in you, but I cannot feel bright. Love is new and fresh to us as the Jew, and we are together. As the lover's worlds go, this is a great deal. Stephen, I fancy I see the difference between you and me, between men and women generally, perhaps. I am content to build happiness on any accidental basis that may lie near hand. You are for making a world to suit your happiness elfride you sometimes say things which make you seem suddenly to become five years older than you are or than i am and that remark is one i couldn't think so old as that try how i might and no lover has ever kissed you before never i knew that you were so unused you ride well but you don't kiss nicely at all and i was told once by my friend knight that that is an excellent fault in a woman now come i must mount again or we shall not be home by dinner-time and they returned to where pansy stood tethered instead of entrusting my way to a young man's unstable palm she continued gaily i prefer a surer upping stock as the villagers call it in the form of a gate there now i am myself again they proceeded homeward at the same walking pace her blitheness won stephen out of his thoughtfulness and each forgot everything but the tone of the moment "'What did you love me for?' she said, after a long, musing look at a flying bird. "'I don't know,' he replied idly. "'Oh, yes, you do,' insisted Elfride. "'Perhaps for your eyes?' "'What of them? Now don't vex me by a light answer. What of my eyes?' "'Oh, nothing to be mentioned. They are indifferently good.' "'Come, Stephen, I won't have that. What did you love me for?' "'It might have been your mouth.' "'Well, what about my mouth?' i thought it was a passable mouth enough that's not very comforting with a pretty pout and sweet lips but actually nothing more than what everybody has don't make up things out of your head as you go on there's a dear now stephen what did you love me for perhaps twas for your neck and hair though i'm not sure or for your idle blood that did nothing but wander away from your cheeks and back again but i'm not sure or your hands and arms that they eclipsed all other hands and arms or your feet that they played about under your dress like little mice or your tongue that it was of a dear delicate tone but i am not altogether sure ah that's pretty to say but i don't care for your love if it's made a mere flat picture of me in that way and not being sure and such cold reasoning but what you felt i was you know stephen at this a stealthy laugh and frisky look into his face when you said to yourself, I'll certainly love that young lady, I never said it. When you said to yourself then, I never will love that young lady, I, I didn't say that either. Then was it, I suppose I must love that young lady? No. Well, what then? Twas much more fluctuating, not so definite. Tell me, do, do. It was that I ought not to think about you if I loved you truly ah that i don't understand there's no getting it out of you and i'll not ever ask you any more never more to say out of the deep reality of your heart what you loved me for sweet tantalizer. what's the use it comes to this sole simple thing that at one time i had never seen you and i didn't love you and then i saw you and i did love you is that enough yes i will make it do i know i think what i love you for you were nice-looking, of course, but I didn't mean for that. It's because you were so docile and gentle. And those are not quite the correct qualities for a man to be loved for, said Stephen, in rather a dissatisfied tone of self-criticism. Well, never mind. I must ask your father to allow us to be engaged directly when we get indoors. It will be for a long time. I like it the better, Stephen. Don't mention it till tomorrow. Why? Because if he should object, I don't think he will, but if he should, we shall have a day longer of happiness from our ignorance. Well, what are you thinking of so deeply? I was thinking how my dear friend Knight would enjoy this scene. I wish he could come here. You seem very much engrossed with him, she answered, with a jealous little toss. He must be an interesting man to take up so much of your attention. Interesting, said Stephen, his face glowing with his fervour. Noble, you ought to say oh yes yes i forgot she said half satirically the noblest man in england as you told us last night he's a fine fellow laugh as you will miss elfrida i know he's your hero but what does he do anything he writes what does he write i had never heard his name because his personality and that of several others like him is absorbed into a huge we namely the impalpable entity called the present a social and literary review Is he only a reviewer?' "'Only, Elfie? Why, I can tell you it's a fine thing to be on the staff of the present, finer than being a novelist considerably.' "'That's a hit at me, and my poor Court of Kellyan Castle.' "'No, Elfie,' he whispered. "'I didn't mean that. I mean that he's really a literary man of some eminence, and not altogether a reviewer. He writes things of a higher class than reviews, though he reviews a book occasionally.' his ordinary productions are social and ethical essays all that the present contains which is not literary reviewing i admit he must be talented if he writes for the present we have it sent to us irregularly i want papa to be a subscriber but he's so conservative now the next point in this mr knight i suppose he's a very good man an excellent man i shall try to be his intimate friend some day but aren't you now no not so much as that replied stephen as if such a supposition were extravagant you see it was in this way he came originally from the same place as i and taught me things but i am not quite intimate with him shan't i be glad when i get richer and better known and hob and nob with him stephen's eyes sparkled a pout began to shape itself upon Elfrida's soft lips you always think of him and like him better than you do me no indeed Elfrida, the feeling is quite different but i do like him and he deserves even more affection from me than i give you are not nice now and you make me as jealous as possible she exclaimed perversely i know you will never speak to any third person of me so warmly as you do to me of him but you don't understand Elfrida," he said with an anxious movement you shall know him some day he's so brilliant no it isn't exactly brilliant so thoughtful and nor does thoughtful express him that it would charm you to talk to him He's a most desirable friend, and that isn't half, I could say. I don't care how good he is, I don't want to know him, because he comes between you and me. You think of him night and day, and ever so much more than of anybody else. And when you are thinking of him, I am shut out of your mind. No, dear Elfrida, I love you dearly. And I don't like you to tell me so warmly about him when you are in the middle of loving me. Stephen, suppose that I and this man, knight of yours, were both drowning. "'and you could only save one of us?' "'Yes, the stupid old proposition. "'Which one will I save?' "'Well, which? "'Not me.' "'Both of you,' he said, pressing her pendant hand. "'No, that won't do. "'Only one of us. "'I cannot say. "'I don't know. "'It is disagreeable. "'Quite a horrid idea to have to handle. "'Aha! "'I know. "'You would save him and let me drown, 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 "'and I don't care about your love.' "'She had endeavoured to give a playful tone to her words.' but the latter speech was rather forced in its gaiety. At this point in the discussion she trotted off to turn a corner, which was avoided by the footpath, and the road and the path reunited at a point a little further on. On again making her appearance, she continually managed to look in a direction away from him, and left him in the cool shade of her displeasure. Stephen was soon beaten at this game of indifference, and went round and entered the range of her vision. Are you offended, Elfie? Why don't you talk? Save me, then, and let that Mr. Clever of yours drown. I hate him. Now, which would you? Really, Elfride, you should not press such a hard question. It is ridiculous. Then I won't be alone with you any more. Unkind to wound me so. She laughed at her own absurdity, but persisted. Come, Elfie, let's make it up and be friends. Say you would save me, then, and let him drown. I would save you, and him too and let him drown come or you don't love me she teasingly went on and let him drown he ejaculated despairingly there now i am yours she said and a woman's flush of triumph lit her eyes only one earring miss as i am alive said unity on their entering the hall with a face expressive of wretched misgiving Elfrida's hand flew like an arrow to her ear there she exclaimed to stephen looking at him with eyes full of reproach i quite forgot indeed if i had only remembered he answered with a conscience-stricken face she wheeled herself round and turned into the shrubbery stephen followed if you had told me to watch anything stephen i should have religiously done it she capriciously went on as soon as she heard him behind her forgetting is forgivable well you will find it if you want me to respect you and to be engaged to you when we have asked papa She considered a moment and added more seriously. I know now where I dropped it, Stephen. It was on the cliff. I remember a faint sensation of some change about me. But I was too absent to think of it then. And that's where it is now, and you must go and look there. I'll go at once. He strode away up the valley under a broiling sun and amid the death-like silence of early afternoon. He ascended with giddy-paced haste the windy range of rocks to where they had sat, felt, and peered about the stones and crannies, but Elfride's stray jewel was nowhere to be seen. Next Stephen slowly retraced his steps, and pausing at a crossroads to reflect a while, he left the plateau, and struck downwards across some fields, in the direction of Endelstow House. He walked along the path by the river without the slightest hesitation as to its bearing, apparently quite familiar with every inch of the ground. As the shadows began to lengthen and the sunlight to mellow, he passed through two wicket gates, and drew near the outskirts of Endelstow Park. The river now ran along under the park fence, previous to entering the grove itself a little further on. Here stood a cottage, between the fence and the stream, on a slightly elevated spot of ground, round which the river took a turn. The characteristic feature of this snug habitation was its one chimney in the gable end, its squareness of form disguised by a huge cloak of ivy which had grown so luxuriantly and extended so far from its base as to increase the apparent bulk of the chimney to the dimensions of a tower some little distance from the back of the house rose the park boundary and over this were to be seen the sycamores of the grove making slow inclinations to the just awakening air stephen crossed the little wood bridge in front went up to the cottage door and opened it, without a knock or signal of any kind. Exclamations of welcome burst from some person or persons when the door was thrust ajar, followed by the scrape of chairs on a stone floor, as if pushed back by their occupiers, in rising from a table. The door was closed again, and nothing now could be heard from within, save a lively chatter and the rattle of plates. End of chapter seven